Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, team is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business sell the team oh yeah welcome aboard hour two john pielli pass ball show mtr radio network of course if you don't you follow me or don't follow me on twitter you could tweet at me at john underscore pielli i will keep the discussion interactive and obviously a great first hour monty irvin ron clark uh, we're all for part of the first hour. Obviously, a great interview with Monty Irvin. A lot of great stories that he got into. And I'm going to segue that into my next interview that I got a chance to speak with and actually meet over the past couple weekends ago. And that's Joe Durham. Joe Durham was an outfielder and ended up playing briefly in the major leagues with the Baltimore Orioles and with the St. Louis Cardinals. And the unfortunate thing about Joe is that uh, even after all the years of uh, you know segregation being kind of uh, getting to a point where society was getting better, Jackie Robinson, of course, making uh, Major League history when he comes the first African-American player to break the color barrier and ending all those years of uh, you know disparity between the white players and the black players, um, Joe Durham still kind of goes through that. And he, he ends up uh, playing with the Cuban-American Giants in 1952. And still, once he's uh, you know under contract, he's signed by Bill Veck, who was then of the St. Louis Browns. And, of course, Veck was no longer the owner when they moved to Baltimore. And he has a hard time. He has a hard time with Paul Richards, which you're going to hear in this interview. And the guy proves himself to be a major league caliber type of player and ends up spending so many seasons in the minor leagues playing in AAA when his numbers obviously prove that he should get a chance to play major league baseball. And, you know, his story honestly kind of upsets you because you, you realize this is the guy that all he's looking for is a chance to play in the major leagues. And he deserved it. He should have gotten a chance to play a little bit every day. And you could tell how the sediment is kind of set in with him. And he's taken it with him over the last couple of years and the last several years of his life. And, you know, you know what? I think you need to hear this and, you know, the, to hear the upset and maybe to a point, if you want to stretch it out and say bitterness to some sort of level, it's understandable. It's understandable why the guy feels the way he did because he got screwed. Here's a guy that certainly should have with the way society had progressed up to the time had gotten himself a chance to play in the major leagues, and he didn't, which is crap 
which is bullshit, which really is an honest tragedy or maybe travesty. I would go tragedy because tragedy is probably set for, uh, you know, life and death situations. But it was a travesty in regards to what ends up happening with this guy not getting a chance to play as much in the major leagues as he should have. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot. It's going to go on for a while and you hear a lot of, uh, you know, the, the – bitter anger that kind of goes through this man's mind and you know through all the years of what he had to experience you know damn right he he should have the right to express his opinion and you know hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with joe durham any comments feel free to tweet at me at john underscore pielli but uh, you know a passionate interview that i really understood and i really felt what was going on through this guy's mind and though i'm never going to experience it firsthand or i haven't experienced it firsthand uh, you you definitely go with him as he's going through a journey uh, through times as you know he goes from playing in the Negro leagues to playing in in Major League Baseball to the minor leagues to having to serve his country, uh, you know in the military. So a lot of different feelings that you get to kind of get in this guy's mind and realize uh, that even after the breaking of the color barrier, after Jackie Robinson ends up playing Major League Baseball. And, uh, you know, allows it that African-Americans could play with the white players in Major League Baseball, that it wasn't all gravy. It wasn't all guaranteed that every talented African-American player was going to get that same opportunity that Jackie Robinson and others after him got. So hopefully you take a couple minutes, listen to this interview with one-time Major League outfielder and former Negro Leagues outfielder Joe Durham. Good evening, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former major leaguer Joe Durham, who also played in the Negro Leagues. Joe, thanks for having a couple minutes. Hi, Joe. Uh, great to have a chance to talk to you. Um, if you can, if, uh, why don't you spend a couple minutes to talk about um, you know, your, your times growing up and getting yourself ready to play baseball when you first started playing in the Negro Leagues? Well, first time in the Negro Leagues was 1952, uh, playing the Chicago American Giants, and uh, that's when it all started. Now, were you always, uh, were you always interested in playing baseball? Did you play a lot as a kid? No, I was interested in playing baseball because I never didn't think I had a chance to play in baseball. And not professionally anyway, because it just wasn't open at that particular time. Now, was it was it a certain time where you, you kind of realized maybe you, you had the skills and you could play with a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, those that you had played with? Well, opportunities weren't there because uh, the way the country was run at that particular time. Uh, situations have improved uh, uh, immensely since that time, so you got everybody got a chance to play as you can play. So back to uh, 1952, when you had started playing, you know, baseball professionally in the Negro Leagues. Uh, tell us a little bit about the experience and what it was like to play with a lot of the players that you were playing against and with. That was great. Some, what were some of the players that you got a chance to play with early on?
Sure, you know, a lot of players could have benefited from having the opportunity to play, you know, together with the, uh, you know, with the other, with the white players. Um, you know, was this, was this something that, you know, as you, as you were coming up as a kid, did you ever think that the, the players in, in baseball would, would be integrated? Did you think that was a possibility of it eventually happening? No, I had no idea because it was, it was nothing that was opened up until Jackie Robinson came in. Once again, John Pielli here with former Major League outfielder Joe Durham, who obviously played in the Negro Leagues before coming to Major League Baseball. You know, of course, Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier, makes his debut for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. Um, did, did that send a little bit of sigh of relief with the thought that the possibility finally exists that maybe you could get into the Major Leagues? Well, I, um, I went off to school after my systems, you worked hard, you get yourself to the major leagues in 1954, and then you have, uh, you know, another setback in regards to, uh, you know, reporting, you know, for American military, which is something that's understood, at, you know, at the time, you know, you know, when you're within a certain age group, you're probably likely to, to serve, and obviously, 
respect has to be given for that. But you know, you finally get back <clears throat> with another opportunity once you uh, once you're done serving, you know, in the army. And you know, what do you what are you feeling at this time? Are you feeling that you know you, you feel like you have a full baseball career ahead of you, or you feel like a little drained from everything that's gone by so far? You know, I thought probably yeah, but, uh, I played while I was in, in the military for the two years uh, at South in Georgia, and I played at the uh, Army headquarters uh, in uh, Stuttgart, Germany. And I uh, was most valuable player in both leagues uh, while I played, and then I come back to uh, I'm out of the Army and I go to spring training, and I had a very good spring training. But you, the wrong manager. And you know, like Paul Richards, which uh, I, I guess that's the reason I don't like Texas today because of him. I thought he took a lot from my career, tried to change my stance, uh, the way I hit. And, uh, and he, he just wasn't truthful. So he, uh, to me, he lied about different things. Uh, uh, and then he had a chance to really play. To, season you end up you know hitting very well you know with San Antonio you you know hit almost 450 games you know it's a it's a situation where there's no question about it I mean if you know the team that you were on the major league affiliate couldn't use you uh, you know there's there's probably you know 15 16 you know other teams in the in the game that could probably benefit from your services yeah well that's what it was but you know this guy had a lot of pull and he, I know in the ball area, though, you start off with everybody in there was, uh, seemed to be a friend of him, you know. And he wouldn't, you know, he didn't, nobody would ever go behind closed doors and talk to him. I'm not a player anyway. Give me a chance. Yeah, uh, that's a shame, man. And of course, you know, you end up after the '57 season, you get you're picked up in a Rule Five draft by the Cardinals. Did you feel like you got a little bit more of a fair shot with St. Louis? No, no, okay. not at all. In one month, I uh, I 
four times as bad in a month. No way, and I know there's another spring. I had a good spring for the garden. And uh, I made the team. I was one of those rule five players. And I made the team. Went into St. Louis, ready to play. We didn't play. My first game was we were on a road in San Francisco. And I played and I went four for three. The two of them were line drives and outs. And I popped up. And uh, the next time I got a chance, it was in Philadelphia, and a hard ground ball. The second baseman, so I'm over for four. That, that was in a month's time before wow. the MLS is out. Well, we don't have to uh, talk to over you. Would you like to stay with us, and uh, do you want to go back to the AAA club? I said, I'll go back to AAA club. I don't want to stay here. I don't get I didn't get in the playing time here while I was here, so I didn't think it was, you know, very fair to me. So, out I went. And of course, you know, you end up uh, spending you know the next the next series of years in the minor leagues. I'm sure you know from from a point of your uh, experiences in the major leagues, that had to be just as equally frustrating, right? No, well, I had to say, you know, in the minor leagues, with them still at the head of everything in, in Baltimore, I'm not going anywhere. They're not going to trade me. They're going to let me get out of there. So uh, happened that the Cardinals got me out of there in '59, but. Uh, I went back, I went back to Vancouver, I had some good years in Vancouver, I had some good years in Rochester. Uh, much better than the guy we were playing AAA today. They never, they were near as hit as much as I was, and I wouldn't, couldn't move. Couldn't move, and they weren't winning that many balls. He was still winning the ball games until he got out of there, and then brought a new manager in, and, and they jumped for some players like Frank Robinson or whatnot. Uh, but the, the nucleus of the team was already there when he had guys like Brooks Robinson, which I played with at Vancouver. Bill uh, Powell, I played with at Rochester. And uh, I had years just as, you know, I would say, I had just as good a year as I was on the team, or better years than some guy on the team. Once again, John Pielli here with former Major League outfielder Joe Durham. Yeah, looking back at some of your minor league numbers, with, you know, from pretty much from the entire time you were playing in Triple A. I mean, you had solid season after solid season, and yeah, in my opinion, and I'm sure you agree with me, and you know, many others have backed this up. There probably is no reason you shouldn't have got at least one more crack. Yeah, well, we talk about the guy like uh, Lou Powell and Brooks Robinson. Brooks is, you know, it's too bad that the university didn't get along. The outfielders didn't have any better outfielders than I did. And I played all three of the outfields. And, uh, but it's just one of those things. He's a kind of person. And I got done with that final year. I played. I just had enough of it. That's it. And uh, looking back, Joe, uh, you know, uh, you, is there is there any moment, you know, on the playing field that kind of stands out to you? Is there any like major memory in uh, like a positive way where you say, "Hey, that was, you know, that that was a great moment. I was glad to be part of that." I had some good, I had some good years, feeling a lot, hitting a lot uh, in the minors, and and uh, I was you know, playing the outfield, I had a good bird on. And all the years I played, I never dropped a fly ball. Wow. And I got get my glove on it is mine. And I, uh, you know, like the silver glove, I had the silver glove award. And that's harder, 
in the Philippines and it was getting the gold and uh, playing in the majors. Because you got all, all the outfielders in the minor leagues to compete with. That started from D ball right on through AAA. Yeah, like I said, I, I was satisfied with well, the, all the songs I played. I still had a major league contract, so that's a all the thing you get to do about. I didn't play, uh, play with the. Uh, Again, John Pielli here with former Major League outfielder Joe Durham. Now, back to your days playing in uh, Virginia. You, know, you had some, probably some rough experiences since there was there was still, so, you know, obviously some serious issues going on with the, the treatment of African American players around there. Um, how how best were you able to deal with it? Were you able to just kind of just let it go, or did you have the urge to uh, you know just kind of defend yourself in uh, such uh, tough treatment? It doesn't bother me with the fans will see the way in, and they were very nasty with the conversations towards me. But you got to look at this way: I was like fifteen, seventeen hundred miles away from. My hometown. What do they know about my parents? Uh, they talk about them. They don't know anything about me. They're just nasty. You don't want to be nasty. Uh, there's no point in me going up in the sand and trying to challenge anybody. So you got to use your head, too. You know, sometimes it's better to use your head than to use a bat. <laughs> Yeah, no question. And I'm sure, you know, you, you, you probably had the mindset of let me just let my play do the talking. You know, if I you know, I get a big hit, you know, I help my team win the game, then, you know, anything they could say probably means a little less because I, you know, I, I, I succeeded. The only thing that bothered me uh, during those times, uh, you got an off day, and you were got to get the families in there for a cookout or whatnot, and I could – yeah, but that's the world of the cookouts because all the time I saw my teammates were at the ballpark. And uh, and I think baseball is a, a family game where well, you everybody got to be pulling for one another. That's why, I, you know, I always keep in mind some of the players that I played with. I really like how you treat you well and uh, respect the kids and whatnot. If you can find a guy better than Chris Robinson and he's from the deep south of Arkansas, and he treats you like you're a king or something. You know, little pile, another one. Those guys are the kind of people that uh, you don't mind being around. And uh, I always played with a lot of Alabama, Mississippi, and whatnot, but we all got along fine. I know some may not have liked with it, and they're sure, you know. Got to work, you know, uh, maybe that night after the game was over or something. They, they went downtown to their hotel, and
Yeah, no question. Once again, John Pielli here with Joe Durham. Now, you know, as, as time goes by, of course, you know, after your playing career, you see, uh, you know, society change, and of course, uh, you know, things have gotten, you know, obviously they've, they've gone leaps and bounds from the way they were when you were growing up and you played. Um, did you, did, do, you, do you think, uh, are you kind of happy with the way things have changed in society? Of course, you know, I would assume it's going to be a yes, but is it a, you know, is it a spot where you think society has progressed you know, far enough to where you'd like to see it? I do uh, think about the, the way things have changed and the change for the better. Yeah, so you think uh, you know you, you think that in in some regards, uh, you know, some of some of the athletes, uh, you know, may may be given a little bit of a better opportunity in regards to let's say national spotlight and stuff like that. You have a chance to to be seen more. Yeah, of course, you just you got a lot of athletes uh, today. Uh, uh, some are the time that I played them did better. Yeah. 
they had a shipyard league. Like, I think one of the best industrial leagues was probably Birmingham, Alabama, uh, steel mills. Uh, shipyard down in Newport News, and for that, they had eight teams in that league. And, uh, and it was, you know, it was a fairly good league because of the guys, sort of guys I named, they played on different teams there. And that's right, that's right. First time uh, playing, uh, uh, getting a chance to play. I played with, with uh, one of the teams in the shipyard league, although I never worked in the shipyard. They, they just, just recruited me to my uh, that's pretty interesting, man. And uh, you know, I'm sure with all you know, with all your experiences, I mean, at least you know now you kind of have you know a lot to look back on. I mean, you know, to play like in all different types of leagues with all different types of you know different types of people and players. Um, you know, listen, you got you, you've had you've had a ton of experiences. If you know, not not all of them good. I'm sure you know a lot of them were. Yeah, the other thing, you know, another thing, uh, the players were there, I'm just, I'm sorry that some of them feel the way they do, they act like, you know, that uh, somebody owes them something. No matter who you earn, you think, with the kind of money you're playing today, you're making a day for Christ's sake. You think, guys, uh, what, what, would, what would you pay guys like DiMaggio and, and uh, Stan Musial, Willie Mays and Hank Aaron today? If guys gonna make $25 million a year, what would they, what would they make? I mean, to, to the game of baseball, they're worth probably twice that much. Man, you got guys making all kind of money. Nothing. You think they got some of the guys making $10, 12000000 million, they can't even chew bubble them for kind of money. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the way it is. I don't envy them because the money, I'm sorry, it wasn't there when I played. They were making the money, but it was a good salary. Well, that particular time, that uh, we could have done with uh, making fourteen, fifteen million dollars a year. I'd be like some of the guys down to down to Dominican. They grew up in dirt floors and straw roofs and this on the houses and whatnot. He used to see the houses he got down in there. Okay, they got three or four maids working. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Living up on and looking down at the beach, a big castle, like 10, 11 bedrooms in the house. Uh, well, see, you couldn't do that back then. <laughs> you, you know, you start out, you start out like making two fifty a month, and that's, well, that was more than I had made. <laughs> so you have to do with it. You start making money when you get uh, you get up. Uh, uh, about it and uh, you know Joe of course after you were done playing you had the opportunity to uh, come back to the Orioles organization where you did uh, you know so you, know, you pitched batting practice you were involved a little bit in the front office and then he became a coach uh, tell us a little bit about that experience because I think that's uh, you know that's something where you know after after having the opportunity to play the game and you know like you mentioned you, you didn't get really a full shot at it um, were you able to you know kind of uh, you know, channel that into helping the other younger players develop, and is was this something you were comfortable in doing? Yeah, I was. Uh, 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 I was. Uh,
Yeah, well, you know, I, you know, pitch a batting practice was just something uh, to do that I had a regular job. Uh, I had a full-time job, and I was just pitch batting practice. Uh, uh, if we didn't have a meeting or something that day, I wouldn't go. Uh, but the rest of the time, I was a pitching batting practice. I didn't get a chance to, to go to a World Series uh, with the team. Uh, but, uh, 
Yeah, it's a long trip, so you got to London, Ontario, from Hagerstown to London, Ontario, so over 10 hours on the bus. Uh, New Britain, Connecticut, nine hours. Then to New York, Auburn in New York, you start with eight to nine hours. Uh, when I, when I worked, and one day I worked both in Frederick and Blake, and I picked the road trips I want to go on, the Frederick road trips are very, are very good, you know, like the, from Frederick to the long strip was in Kansas, North Carolina, which is five and a half hours. The rest of them, you know, are close. Uh, you don't have to worry about the uh, you know, spaces down North Carolina. Uh, uh, Durham was in the league at the time. I first started in the West of Salem. And we had nice, you know, I had the big tour buses. Uh, uh, and it stayed in a nice, nice hotel or motel. It was good. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, you know, being with the kids. Uh, and I get, sometimes I get surprised and call some guys from Sacramento, California, which I haven't seen in such. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with Joe Durham and obviously a lot of trials and tribulations that he has to still go through after he's, uh, you know, your color barrier is broken. You figure in the 1950s, going into the mid-1950s, um, up until the late 1950s, that this guy would have gotten a legitimate chance to play Major League Baseball. And I'll tell you, if you have any doubts about anything he said about not getting it the right opportunity, go on to baseballreference.com and look at the numbers that he had in AAA on a year-in and year-out basis. 
because that'll answer all the questions right there. And you tell me the Baltimore Orioles of those times were, were, were that good of a team that they could have afforded to have players with that much talent in AAA. And, and the answer to that is no. There's no way that that could have been possible because that team stunk up until after he was done playing and guys like he mentioned, like Boog Powell and Brooks Robinson and Frank Robinson and, of course, the pitchers like Jim Palmer and Dave McNally and you know later on Scott McGregor and Mike Flanagan end up uh, making that team into a perennial uh, pennant-winning team. But it didn't happen until after Durham was done playing. Those crappy teams that the Baltimore Orioles ran out there under Paul Richards year in and year out uh, could have benefited from having Joe Durham play. I mean, you look at his numbers in AAA, there's no reason that he shouldn't have gotten more of a chance in the major leagues. And it's an honest joke um, you know, for uh, an organization like that. And one thing that I give uh, Joe Durham some respect for is the fact that you know, all the years later, he ends up pitching batting practice for him. He ends up, you know, working in the minor leagues for that same organization that so wronged him in his time there. And it just shows that he comes out as the better man in this situation. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to do is we're going to take our only break at this hour, probably about a two-minute break or so. And we'll be back. I'll finish up pretty strong with a lot more stuff going on. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Back after this. Hey guys and gals, want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bun Day Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WINGS. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. And if you're thinking, hey, this is a baseball show, why is he not talking about Alex Rodriguez? The bottom line is, listen, if you want to listen to MTR Radio, I'm sure you get a bunch of different perspectives on Alex Rodriguez and a couple shows that I guest host on. I'll give a little bit of my perspective, but I'm not going to do it on this show. I'm sorry. You know, for the traditional baseball fan, the fan that loves the history of the game, uh, you know, the stuff that's going on with Alex Rodriguez is neither here nor there. And, you know, if you want to talk a little bit of Major League Baseball, listen, it's a little bit of a 
dead time in regards to as free agency is just about, or is it? I mean, you look at the amount of free agent pitchers that are out there and haven't been signed yet. And, you know, we could talk about Tanaka all you want, but there's also Matt Garza and Irvin Santana and Bronson Arroyo. And, you know, you know about all the free agent pitchers that are out there. And the one thing that I'm going to bring up is pretty interesting about this whole thing is the fact that we are getting into January, and eventually we're going to be getting into February. Uh, And you figure there's going to be a time that these free agent pitchers are going to come off kind of like dominoes. You know, you figure the Tanaka thing will end up uh, working itself out, whether he goes to the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Angels, who you figure are probably the three top teams in regards to uh, his services. They're probably his three finalists right now. I think everybody else you would say is probably out. The Cubs, the Diamondbacks, teams that you thought may have had a chance are probably not in the mix right now. But what happens to the teams that don't get him? Obviously, you know it's either the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Angels are going to get Tanaka. But the other two teams that don't, are they going to invest in another pitcher like a Garza or a Irvin Santana? You would figure likely that those two players, those two pitchers, would end up with the other two teams that don't end up with Tanaka. But, you know, listen, what does that mean for Bronson Arroyo? What does that mean for some of the other pitchers? Uh, Guys that I've mentioned before like Tommy Hansen or James McDonald or Jeff Neiman. And those are just to name a few. But if you look in regards to past free agency history, there has not been uh, that many legitimate free agent pitchers. And I mentioned some of the guys towards the end and towards the top. There are some other pitchers in the middle, too, that haven't been mentioned. But I guess that's a legitimate question that could be asked. Has there ever been an offseason where top free agent pitchers have waited so long to come off the board. And, you know, we remember guys like Vladimir Guerrero and, you know, other off seasons where guys ended up kind of waiting towards the end. Kyle Loesch last year. And, you know, the issue over the last couple of years has been about the qualifying offer and teams not wanting to surrender that number one draft pick. And you obviously have guys that are stuck on a board with, in those cases, like Kendrys Morales and Steven Drew. But in regards to the pitching, it's all about Tanaka. None of these other pitchers seem like they're going to come off the board until this guy's signed. And obviously, there's a good chance that the three teams that are bidding on him, the three teams that have the legitimate chance, like I mentioned, the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Angels, that these teams may come down to the last day. And Tanaka and his agent may wait until the very last day to make his decision to see if the best offer is in there and it and isn't. And from that point forward, you got you're gonna see guys like Garza and Santana and Bronson Arroyo come off the board as the other teams that don't end up winning. And and let's let's be honest, you know, winning his services, the the teams like the Diamondbacks and the Cubs may want to go out there and sign themselves one of these other guys since they're out of it. And I think, you know, maybe they have a little bit of a uh, one up on them or maybe an advantage because they're not bidding on Tanaka anymore because they, they're they kind of assured that he's going to go to one of those other three teams. So if I was Arizona, if I was Chicago, if I was one of the other teams that was bidding on him and thinking you had a legitimate chance at him and now realize that there's probably no chance or a limited chance of getting him, then maybe I take my attention and go to a Garza or go to a Santana and maybe offer a legitimate deal and say, listen, how about you take this right now? You come to us. We want you. And maybe they could convince him to go that way. But hey, listen, if you're one of the other guys, then maybe you're saying, hey, let's see what Tanaka ends up getting paid. And if he gets paid a ton, then maybe we get one of the teams that lost out, you know, in the last minute on him. And maybe we could go get ourselves a big deal 
deal. Maybe Matt Garza can get $80 million. Maybe Bronson Arroyo could get three years and $40 million or something like that because of what Tanaka ends up getting and because of the fact that maybe the, that either the Dodgers, Yankees, or Angels, two of those three teams that want Tanaka that bad and want to spend the money that it's going to cost to get a guy like that, uh, have the money to spare and are going to be a little more desperate. They're going to have to make that decision at the last minute. Listen, we want a starting pitcher. We want a top guy. We want a Tanaka. We're not going to get him, but we're going to have to settle ourselves for something else. But considering the amount of money that they're going to have to spend, they're just going to do it for the sake of it. And I think that's how these other pitchers are going to benefit. In the end, Matt Garza is going to get paid. In the end, Irvin Santana is going to get paid. In the end, Bronson Arroyo is going to get himself a three-year deal when it's all said and done. Case is empty blog. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay. And there you go. I threw a little bit of a base is empty blog in there because I do want to touch on a couple things before we ended up end up leaving the show. And obviously the show's been very good. Monty Irvin, Joe Durham, Ron Clark, great guests today. And hopefully if you get a chance to listen to the show on a replay in case you missed any uh, parts of those three interviews. But I did want to get into a little bit about the College of Coaches that was used by the Chicago Cubs in 1961 and 1962. And you may not be so familiar with it. Uh, the Cubs, you know, led by their owner, Philip K. Wrigley, decided that they wanted to have something similar to what ended up happening in the NFL now with the head coach and his staff. But the only difference was that the actual manager of the team for each game uh, would kind of rotate and not necessarily game to game, but you know, week to week. And you saw what ended up happening for the 1961 season. Leo DeRocher was the manager and interim manager towards the end of the 1960 season. He was let go. And it was decided by Wrigley and by the Cubs organization that they wanted to go with kind of a uh, manager by committee type of thing. And it, like I said, it wasn't a game to game basis. But in 1961, it was set up that uh, Harry Kraft, who had previously managed before, um, Verdi Himsel, and uh, El Tappy, who was the catcher of the 1961 Chicago Cubs, would end up being part of a carousel of uh, the Cubs managers. Harry Kraft had managed the uh, Kansas City Athletics from 1957 to 1959. Lou Klein was also in the mix. So you got three managers that have never managed before, and then Kraft, who had the three years of experience. And what ended up happening... Verdi Himsel would end up being the first manager of the season for the Cubs, and he would lead the team to a 5-6 and six record, and Harry Kraft would take over and lead them to a 4-8 and eight record, and that was followed by them going to Himsel again, who led them to a 5-12 and 12 record. El Tappy took over. He would be in charge for the Cubs, and they won their next two games. They were 2-0. and oh. Kraft took over again, and the Cubs went 3-1. and one. Himsel led the team to an 0-3 record in the next three games. Now the Cubs are at 19-30 and 30 at this point. They go with Tappy again, but this time kind of changing their philosophy. They let Tappy run the team for the next 78 games. Now they did go on a nice run over that time. They were 35-43, and 43, some ups, some downs, but you know probably the best run of the season they had under Tappy. And Klein got his chance for the first time, led the team to a 5-6 and six record, and then they left Tappy in charge for the final 16 games of the season, and they went 5-11. and 11. Now the Cubs went 64-90, and 90, finished 7th out of eight, the 8 teams in the NL, and for the record, just so you know, Himsel went 10-21, and 21, Kraft went 7-9, and nine, Tappy went 42-54, and 
And for the record, Luke Klein, like I said, was uh, five and six. So the Cubs didn't back off of this. In spite of losing 90 games, they decided to go for it again and kind of have another manager by committee for the 1962 season. And what ended up happening is Harry Kraft got himself another major league job. He was uh, named the manager for the expansion Houston Colt 45s. And they decided to go again with Tappy and Lou Klein. So they were part of the mix. The other guy was Charlie Metro, who had also never managed before. So they ended up uh, uh, doing that, but they wanted to do it a different way. They decided that once they went with a manager, they were going to go with him for a while and not kind of rotate between the three of them. It was one manager, then one manager, then one manager. And that's how they ended up doing um, they started with the first 20 games with Tappy as the manager. They went 4-16, and 16, a bad start. So they ended up keeping Tappy as part of the, the staff. But, you know, ra- you know as opposed to uh, letting him go or, or, or firing him, he was part of the coaching staff. So they ended up going with, guy, with uh, Luke Klein after that and then with Metro after that. Now, Luke Klein, they went 12-18 and 18 under in the 30 games under Luke Klein. Now, they went to the rest of the season with Johnny Metro, where they went 43-69. and 69. The Cubs for that season went 59-103. and 103. They were lucky to be in the same league as the expansion New York Mets, who went, of course, 40-120. and 120. Uh, Kraft's Cole 45s, though, went 64-96 and 96 and finished six games ahead of the Cubs. But the college coach's idea was done likely before the 19. 19- uh, 62 season finished. The next season, the Cubs hired Bob Kennedy to be their sole manager. Uh, he led the Cubs in 1963 to a 82-80 season. And a college of coaches, uh, certainly uh, other than Kraft, did not really manage again in the major leagues. And in fact, uh, Johnny Metro in a 1971 Oakland Athletics led them to a 19-33 record would only manage again for another organization. Klein would be back with the Cubs in 1965, being ironically the replacement for Kennedy, who was fired after going 48-58. and 58. Kraft would stick around in Houston until there was 14 games to go in the 1964 season. So uh, obviously a lot of interesting things going on with that, a total different system in regards to a coaching by committee, which you haven't seen in Major League Baseball before that or after that. And I, I actually found that interesting to kind of research and realize that you know they they actually wanted a series of managers for a team and you could see how it worked out obviously the 61 and 62 cubs were not very good so i don't think you could be shocked by anything you saw there but uh you know once again i do want to thank monty irvin and ron clark and joe durham for being part of this program the past ball show right here on the mtr radio network a reminder check out the uh, iphone and android mobile apps and, of course, check out my Twitter feed at John underscore Pielli. Any comments, suggestions, anything going on in regards to what you want to hear me talk about because I always reply to my tweets, particularly during the hours of the program, whether you're listening to it on Saturday morning from 10 to 12 or any of the many repeats over the course of the week. But a uh, great job today uh, by all my guests, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed the content. Uh, once again, this is John Pielli, MTR Radio Network, Pass Ball Show. We'll be back with you next week with a lot more stuff going on. Welcome to London. Welcome to Chicago.